does not have wisdom. It does not have the virtues that one would want in a leader. And therefore, Socrates says, you know, if you do this, you're gonna, it's going to be a disaster. You're going to be creating a lot of trouble, which turned out to be true. Alcibiades, of course, ignores Socrates' advice, and he goes into politics anyway, becomes a general, and it's a disaster. And 20 years later, he gets killed as, in part as a result of it. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast. My name is Ron Duran Jr., and I will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Today's guest is Massimo Pilucci. Massimo has a PhD in evolutionary biology from the University of Connecticut and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Tennessee. He's currently a professor of philosophy at the City College of New York, and his research interests include philosophy of science, the nature of pseudoscience, and practical philosophies like stoicism and new skepticism. He is also a prolific author. And today, we're going to talk about his latest book about Socrates and Alcibiades and the quest for character. Are we born with it, or can we develop it? We wade into topics of wealth, power, and ambition, cooperation, and competition, and of course, no discussion about character can avoid politics. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Forge, my friends. This is my this is kind of a, a interesting podcast because, oh gosh, Forging Metal podcast has been in been in business, I guess, for about two and a half years. And Massimo, you are our first return guest. <laughs> and I will say that his first interview, and, and I don't, I don't have the episode with me in my notes. I should, but please go check it out. It is in the top ten. I want to say it's in the top five of most downloaded podcasts I've had. And also, his YouTube video has done really well for me. So, Massimo, I say welcome back to the Forge, and I would say you have a lot of loyal followers. You have a, quite a tribe. I think that's that's the sense I get. <laughs> well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about your, your latest book. And by the way, what, how many books have you written now? This is number 16. Wow. Number 16. All right. So number 16 yeah. for Massimo. That's a lot of writing. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get my first book done right now. And I'm like, wow, this is a lot of work. So I'm impressed by, by saying that you've, you've, you know, wrote six, 16 books, but this one I'm holding it up in the YouTube. If you're watching or listening on audio, you can't obviously see that, but I'm going to read the title here. The quest for character, what the story of Socrates. And I'm hopefully I'm saying this right. Socrates and Alcibiades teaches us about our search for good leaders. Yeah, and I think to myself, Massimo, what an appropriate time to write a book like this. What drove <laughs> you? Let, let's start right there. What drove you to write a book like this? What What was well, the passion? A couple of things. The, actually, one of the the interesting starting points for me was Alcibiades himself. He is a fascinating character. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that nobody has made a movie or a television series out of the life of this guy. He was a friend of Socrates, a student of Socrates, rumored to be also a lover of Socrates. He was impossibly handsome, uber rich, dashing, brave, coming from one of the best and most noble families in Athens. So, you know, he had everything you would imagine one, one could could need in order to succeed in life. 
However, he also had ambition and he wanted to be naturally, I guess I understand. And, and he wanted to be a leader in Athens. He wanted to be a general. He wanted to be a statesman. So he goes to Socrates when he, when Alcibiades is fairly young. He's in his early twenties and Socrates is in his forties. He goes to Socrates and says, you know, I, I'd like to lead Athens. What do you think? And Socrates basically sits him down for what we would today call it sort of a job interview and starts asking him, asking Alcibiades questions. And after a while, it becomes obvious that Alcibiades really shouldn't get into politics for the simple reason that he's doing it for the wrong reasons. He's, he's doing it for self-aggrandizing, for glory and all that. So not because he actually gives a damn about the citizens of Athens and their welfare, and so at the end of the, the, the most important part of the dialogue, which is the Alcibiades Meyer, which is attributed to Plato, Socrates at some point says, then alas, Alcibiades, what a condition you suffer from. I hesitate to name it, but it must be said, you are wedded to stupidity, best of men, of the most extreme sort, as the argument accuses you and you accuse yourself. So this is why you are leaping into the affairs of the city before you have been educated. Ouch, right? So this is the, your okay. mentor and friend who says, you're an idiot. You just get out of the way. <laughs> now, the word that is translated there typically as stupidity, it's actually a little bit, bit more subtle. The original Greek word is amatia, which even though a little bit more clumsily is better translated as unwisdom. So what Socrates is saying is not that Alcibiades is stupid. He's not stupid by any standard of, of the word, understanding of the word, but he's unwise. He does not have wisdom. He does not have the virtues that one would want in a leader. And therefore, Socrates says, you know, if you do this, you're going to, it's going to be a disaster. You're going to be creating a lot of trouble, which turned out to be true. Alcibiades, of course, ignores Socrates' advice and he goes into politics anyway, becomes a general and it's a disaster. And 20 years later, he gets killed as in part as a result of it. And one can argue that a good reason for why Athens lost the Peloponnesian War against the Spartans is precisely because of Alcibiades' actions and, and his decisions. So Socrates was right. So I was initially really intrigued by the figure of Alcibiades and by his incredible life. And then I started thinking, okay, well, this particular dialogue really goes at the heart of the matter of character and why is it important, not just for leaders, also for, you know, regular people like you and me, but certainly, especially for leadership. And, and that's that's where the book came from in, in the end. There's so much there. I mean, Alcibiades, as I was reading it, I was like, wow, this guy's this guy's an interesting character, <laughs> to to put it mildly. And so one thing, there's a couple of things out of that, what you just said that, that struck me. One is he asks Socrates for advice and then decides not to take it. Do we ever see that? And, you know, that, that, that never happens. We see that a lot, right? Well, yeah, right. I only want your advice if it, if it is in alignment with what I'm thinking. And then the other thing, something I've been thinking about recently that you mentioned, Massimo, is ambition a good thing or a bad thing? And, and I, I know that's, that's wow, what a question, right? Good thing. And, and then maybe we don't even use good or bad. Maybe we say healthy or unhealthy or something like that. But, right. but I was, I've always grew up thinking ambition's a good thing. But can, can ambition be a bad thing? I think it can. I mean, the, the, the issue with ambition is that by itself, 
it doesn't really mean much. One needs to fill in the the the, the gap and say, well, ambition to do what, right? So. If we're talking about, I don't know, is ambition to improve the lot of humanity a good thing? I would say so. Is ambition to make a lot of money and become famous a good thing? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so it, it really depends on ambition of what. So, so what is your goal here? And in fact, that's exactly a good way to, to describe Alcibiades' problem, right? If his ambition were to do good for the city of Athens and to improve the lot of his citizens, then, yeah, that would be a good thing to pursue. But his ambition is not that one. It's his glory. It's self-aggrandizement. It's you know, money and because he's used to luxury. And so that in that case, it's definitely not a good thing. So it depends. I think it, sometimes, uh, too often, people just talk about ambition as if it was an unqualified thing. It has to be qualified. Ambition mm. to do what? What is, your, what is your goal? What is it that you're doing? What are you trying to accomplish? Mm. So... You know, and therefore it's it's in itself, I think it's neutral. It it really okay. depends on what it is that you are pursuing. Okay. And sometimes I have this discussion with my students, and sometimes they'll say, Well, wait a minute. If if they were sitting in front of you, Massimo, they would say, wait a minute, you know, becoming famous and making a lot of money, why is that a bad thing? Why can't I use my fame and fortune to make the world a better place? I think you would agree that's probably a good thing. The the end result is I want I want I care about people. Um, and so we can yes. use we can use that power that that money for good. Yeah, uh, that's another one. That word power is that a good thing? Is that something we should pursue, or is that a bad thing? Does that make us look bad if we pursue power? I guess it depends so, on what you want to use that power for. Precisely. So all of those things—power, money, you know, wealth more generally, fame, etc.—all of those the Stoics refer to as externals, meaning that they are not things that are internal to our character. They're not, they're not who we are. They are things we use, right? And as such, they can be used for good or for bad, right? So it's, they're, they're tools. Like, they're like a, a hammer. If you pick up a hammer, you know, the, to nail something to the wall, that's great. If you pick up a hammer to smash somebody's skull, that's an, it's a different attitude, right? So it depends on what you want to do with it. Now, so although it's true that, if you are a powerful and well and or wealthy individual, you can do a lot of good. And therefore, that at least theoretically, power and wealth can be a good. I am skeptical of people who say, I want to become rich because I want to help the world. I think that most people want to become rich because they want to become rich. They don't give a damn about the rest of the world. And then it becomes a matter of rationalizing. Like, it's like, well, I got to explain this to some extent why sure. I want to do this. You know, so... So one needs to be very careful because there, there is a subtle line sometimes between having reasons for something and rationalizing your already made decisions. That, that's funny because how many people, you know, when, when they say they want to be rich, and by the way, I, I ask my students, how many want to want to make a lot of money? Nobody's going to say just because I want to be a greedy bastard. You know, that, that's not the answer you're going to get, right? And right. so <laughs> they'll they'll try to find something. And I don't you know, I don't want to make any judgments. And I'm sure you don't either that I don't know, really know what's driving that. But me personally, and I used to, when I was a young man, I used to pursue money as, as being the thing, right? That was the thing that made me feel like I was contributing self-worth and, and value. I look at it differently yeah. now. I switch that around and say, I want to bring value to the world. And mm -hmm. yes, I wouldn't mind getting paid for that value that I bring to the world. But the driving factor 
it's to bring value to the world and hopefully help, you know, others. And so I think maybe it's a subtle shift because I think you can do both. I think you can bring that value and, you know, be compensated well for that. But yeah, I don't I'm think always the, on the, the shift is that, that. Yeah, I don't think the shift is that subtle. Actually, it's. I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, priorities can go one way or or the other. But there's a big difference there between I want to bring value to the world. I want to be, make the world a better place in in however capacity I can do that. And then, sure, I I need to pay my bills and my mortgage as well so you know my books are not free people have to pay for them because sure. i need to pay my bills that's one thing it's it's a completely different thing to say i am writing my books because i want to make money and i don't give a crap about whether they mm. actually help people or or not it's a very different you know mindset and as you can tell i'm far more skeptical than the, of the second part the second aspect than the, than the first one so i think that people you know you're right of course that one it's hard to make a judgment about people who you don't know. I mean, I don't know your students. I don't even know very well my students. So I don't know exactly what their motivations are other than what they tell me, right? And sometimes self-analysis can be deceptive. Some people can say because they're convinced that they're doing something because of this reason or that reason. But in fact, research in psychology shows that a lot of the times we confabulate, we make up reasons that we believe, but in fact, they're not the real reasons behind our actions. So it's it's a really tricky business. But Greco-Roman philosophy does teach you that you should be paying attention to your motivations as much as it is possible. And you should be working on having the right motivations when you do things. Because after all, the only thing that it's truly up to you is, in fact, your judgment, your decisions to do or not to do certain things. Whether you succeed or not depends on a lot of external factors. And so ultimately, the buck there doesn't stop with you. But in terms of making decisions, it does. No, nobody can make your decisions for you on your behalf. And for anybody that's not a student of Stoic philosophy, what, what Massimo is saying there is, is very much at the heart of Stoic philosophy. Right. And so control those things that you can. So, you know, this book is about, is about character. What is character? You know, give us a little bit. So all of us are on the same page, you know, all the listeners and myself. What was your working definition that you had for this book and when we talk about character yeah that's a good question so character is a set of behavioral inclinations or behavioral tendencies so let's say for instance that your friend is generous you know you say oh I, my, my friend is generous. well what do you mean you mean that other things being equal your friend behaves in a generous fashion right it lends money to people, he lends time to people, he, he, he's, he's helpful. If, on the other hand, you say, my friend is stingy, what you mean is that, again, other things being equal, that person behaves in a way that is the opposite of, of being generous, right? The same goes for being courageous or coward or, or a coward and, you know, being temperate or intemperate, et cetera, et cetera. So, Character is made, is one word by which we, we refer to a, a set of behavioral tendencies that can be studied uh, empirically because people behave in certain ways, right? So you can, you can tell quite a bit about somebody's character by, in fact, observing carefully what that person does or does not do under, under certain conditions. Now, one of the things that makes the study of character difficult, however, is that it turns out that in a number of, of cases, of circumstances, 
we actually behave, might behave uncharacteristically because we are responding to situations that have really nothing to do with character. For instance, there is research that shows that if you get into a mall, a shopping mall, and you smell freshly baked bread, you are more likely to be helpful to somebody in need than not. All right, now, normally, if you were helpful to people in need, we'll say, oh, that's a generous person, right? Or is some, somebody who has a good character. But it turns out that even if you don't have a particularly good character, you will be inclined to help if you smell baking bread. And so it's it's that kind of ra- random thing, you know, baking bread doesn't have anything to do with presumably with your decision making and your character, et cetera, et cetera. And yet it can alter your behavior. So that is one of the things that makes this, the, the study of character difficult. However, Psychologists have certainly found out that once you make people aware of those external factors, so you you tell them, hey, you know, guess what? Turns out that smelling bread makes people act in certain ways. Once they're aware, they actually are capable of overriding those external factors. And that's where the actual character emerges. That's where their their foundational sort of personality actually emerges. So it's complicated to study. It's not, it's not that easy to study, but there is a whole branch of modern psychology, social psychology that studies, in fact, empirically how people's characters are structured, how they change over time, how are they affected by external conditions and so on. I'm laughing because I think, if I remember right, I read somewhere that the smell of baking bread is one of those most powerful smells to human beings. There's something yeah. about that that yeah. that kind of I don't know changes the changes our behavior, and that's kind of fascinating yeah, to me. Yeah. And I try to go, okay, why is that? Is our ancestors were were making bread, and and that I don't know, <laughs> yeah. it signals something to our brain. So it's kind of interesting. It's a um, it's a kind of pleasant experience, yeah. you know, sensorial experience that make puts you in a good mood. And when you're when you are in a good mood, then you tend to behave more pro socially, more you know, more helpful to other people. Maybe that's the takeaway from this podcast is you want to bring over some friends. You want everybody to get along. Just bake some bread. That's right. Or you want to sell your house. There you go. There Real you estate go. agents tell, will tell you, bake some bread a, when when you're selling a house because it's it makes, good. It, yep. It puts potential customers, you know, purchasers in a good mood. <laughs> don't Don't let car dealers learn that. Every car dealership you go into will have that's right. baking bread now. Let's, let's, you know, this is always a fun thing, especially in the field that you study philosophy. It's always fun to talk about good and bad, right? What does that mean? So if I were to say, what's good character, Massimo, what's bad character? Are those the right words? How do you, I mean, is it safe to say everybody has character? And then if, if that's true, then, then how do we know somebody, how do we ascertain that one, some one this person person a has good character person b has bad character how do you how do you describe yeah that? it's a good question however I, in that particular case i think the answer is actually pretty simple a good character is fundamentally a pro-social character that is 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 the kind of behavior that are is helpful to other people and a bad character is an antisocial behavior or in fact a behavior that undermines other people, right? I mean, think about the classic examples. We just talked about generosity and stinginess, right? Why is that people consider generosity a good thing? Because it's helpful to other people. 
Why is it a stinginess is a bad thing? Because it's not helpful to other people. The same goes for pretty much anything else. I mean, if you're courageous, you're, doing, you're going to do things that are helpful to people, even at your personal risk. If you're a coward, on the other hand, you're probably going to endanger other people because you're not going to be able to do things when, when there is a personal risk and so on and so forth. A bunch of other, of, of pretty much any other character trait you can think of kind of lines up along these these this dimension of helpful or not helpful or pro-social or non-pro-social. So I don't like to use the word good and bad because it, there's a lot of baggage there that it's I, don't, I find not particularly helpful. On the other hand, pro-social or cooperative, however you want to you wanna put it, is not only a milder way, I guess, to present the, the, the issue, but it's also a more accurate way because after all, it all goes down to the fact that biologically speaking, we are social organisms. We're social, we're social species. So we are in, you know, there is an ingrained instinct for cooperation in human beings, just like there is for other social primates, like the bonobos, for instance. They're very highly cooperative animals because their survival depends on, you know, their, their survival and their, their ability to thrive depends on cooperation. And so they tend to be cooperative. That doesn't mean that they or us cooperate all the times or, or always are generous or always are, you know, courageous, etc. But it means that there is a reason why sort of pro-social traits are considered, quote unquote, good, because we're a social species. Mm. One of the things that I'm exploring, and by the way, that was very helpful for me. One of the things I'm exploring in my own book is, is wrestling with this, I don't know, this religion in the United States of competition. Yeah. You know, are we, you know, and I've read, you know, Alfie Cohn's book and, and, and looked at some of, some of the research that says, no, we are not actually designed to be competitive. What are your thoughts on, are we, are we built as human beings to cooperate, collaborate, or are we more built for competition? What are your thoughts on that, Massimo? I think there's pretty good evidence now for, from, from comparative primatology that we are built largely for cooperation. I say largely because, of course, there is always a tension between my own needs and the needs of the people around me right i mean it's not it's not we're not we're not the kind of social animal like let's say ants or bees or something like that where it's every everything is everybody collaborates so that the queen is going to be thriving right we don't do that sort of stuff we are not pretty much brainless you know bees and, and ants with all due respect have tiny little brains they don't they don't really have a lot of autonomy we tend to be we are autonomous beings. we think for ourselves we we are we we certainly have a certain degree of independence and therefore of course we're concerned about ourselves as well but think about it in terms not of modern large sometimes gigantic society societies think about it for most of the history of humanity for most of our history we were living in small bands of 60 80 100 individuals and those individuals were largely related to each other they were all your aunts and, and nieces and nephews and uncles and so on and so forth right so cooperation there it certainly overrode competition what do you want to compete for with with your own relatives if it's a matter of survival you want to cooperate you want to coordinate things right if you want to go if you're going hunting for instance 
you want to cooperate with your relatives so you bring down that mammoth or that elephant or whatever it is and there's dinner on the table you know when most of the activities that we in or used to to do on a regular basis on a daily basis for most of our history required coordination and co- and, and cooperation and so we're mostly a cooperative animal Again, that doesn't mean that there are no exceptions. It doesn't mean that there are not people that just mostly look after number one and so on and so forth. But but those are exceptional. And you're, I think yeah. you're right, therefore, that modern society, especially modern American society, it's actually a little bit of a aberration. It, it's a deviation from what has been the case for most of human history. Yeah, kind of what I'm, I'm flushing out. And I, I need to look and see. I'm sure there's research to to. I, I think there's probably research to support what I'm thinking is, in group. We I think we're we're built to be you know cooperative, collaborative. And I, I think I've heard the number up to groups of about 150. I don't know if you've heard that as yeah, well, Massimo. Something like that. Yeah. And and yeah. So once we get beyond that, and let's be honest, the modern society, especially with with this connection with social media. You know, you could have a group much bigger than 150. And I think once we get out group, you know, we have in-group cooperation, collaboration. Then once we get outside our group, outside our tribe, then maybe those competitive drives kick in. But I think by by and large, our nature is to be collaborative because that's what our ancestors used to survive. So where I'm going with this is you said, okay, good character, pro-social. But there's a lot of people out there that say, hey, I'm here to make my millions, be successful, you can do all those things we talked about earlier, and I don't care who I step on on the way. I'm not here to help anybody else. This is all about me. And so now we may say that's not, maybe, you know, that's not a, that's not great character, right? And we see this stuff. And yeah. so bad behavior, perhaps. And again, I'm using the word bad, that qualitative word. It's hard to get away from good and bad, right? Yeah, sure. We're so good at at doing that. But so I'm trying to direct this back to how do we get better? Is is character something that we're born with? Or is character something we can learn? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So this is a question that's been debated for literally two and a half millennia. Like Socrates starts started out raising the question, can we teach what he called virtue? Can we teach wisdom? In other words, can we improve our character? And uh, Socrates himself was of two minds about it. At some point in one of the Socratic dialogues by Plato, he says, no, I don't, I don't think so. He says, we can't really, I don't, I don't see how you can teach character or virtue because, he said, First of all, if this, if this were possible, you would see a lot of teachers of virtue because this is an important thing. This is something that a lot of people would want to learn. I don't see anybody. You looked around and you said, I don't see anybody teaching virtue. Of course, his friends would have said, well, you are one of those teachers. But, <laughs> you know, he was too modest. And also he made another interesting argument. He said, look, I know a lot of people who are virtues and their sons are not. Right? So he said, for instance, Pericles, who was the the chief statesman in Athens at the time. He's like, yeah, he's a really virtuous person. He's a courageous. He's got all these, and he, but yet look at his sons. They're just like idiots and they're, they're not, they're not capable of doing the right thing. So he says, you know, if anybody could teach virtue, that would be your fa- a father to their, to his sons. And yet I don't see that. I see plenty of examples of that not working. So he's a little bit pessimistic about it. But then in a later Platonic dialogue, the Protagoras, Socrates changes his mind because Protagoras, who was a sophist, talks to Socrates and says, look, I think that a better way of looking at the problem is that virtue or wisdom or characters 
are skills, they're technical skills. They're similar to, let's say, play a musical instrument or learning a language. They said, you know, so if you want to learn a, a, a musical instrument, what do you do? Well, you need three things. You need a little bit of theory. You, you need to know something about musical notation and, and how the notes re, you know, relate to each other. Otherwise, you just you have no idea what you're doing. Ideally, you need a good teacher because the teacher can point out to you ways to improve your technique or maybe something that you're doing that it's not right and undermines your technique, that sort of stuff. But mostly what you need is practice, 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 practice. Like every day you pick up the, the musical, you know, the saxophone, let's say, or the flute, and then you play your little scales and then more complex scales and then little tunes and more complex tunes and, and so on and so forth. It's mostly about practice. So Protagoras says the same goes with virtue. You might be helped by some theory. So by theory, he means things like a little bit of philosophy, essentially, right? So the Stoics thought that there are four cardinal virtues and they organized their, their thinking around these, these four virtues, practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Fine. That's, that's the theoretical part. That's helpful. It, it kind of help, helps you, gives you a framework, uh, a way of thinking about what you're doing. If you're lucky to find a, a Socrates around or somebody like Socrates, you know, great, that's, that's your teacher. But mostly it's a question of practice. Now, the question, however, is, yeah, but hold on a second. We know how to practice a language or we know how to practice a musical instrument. How the hell do you practice virtue, right? So that seems a little more complicated, but it's not. There are plenty of examples. So for instance, Let's say, let's go back to the virtue that we mentioned in the beginning, generosity. Let's say that I decide with a little bit of reflections, like, you know, I'm not as generous as I would like to be. I, I think that's one area where I, I can improve. Well, there's a number of things I could do. For instance, I could make a point of putting some change in my pockets every morning before leaving the apartment and then give that change to the first homeless person that I meet in the streets, no questions asked. Now, initially, this will feel awkward. You might even question, you know, what am I doing here? Well, that's, this feels weird. But the more you do it, and there is very good empirical evidence that, that, is, that this is the case, the more you do it, the more it becomes second nature. The more you kind of like, at some point, you, you'll just want, not even think about it. You pick up the change, you go out and you give it to somebody. At that point, you manage to alter your pattern of behavior. A character, remember, is just a pattern of behavior. And behavioral patterns can be consciously altered by making a decision first, here's what I want to do, and then doing it. Another example, which has nothing to do with moral character, is decide that you need to go to the gym. So I'm out of shape. So I make the decision of going to the, starting going to the gym. Initially, it's I'm not going to like it. Because I don't, you know, I'd rather stay home and, you know, in front of the television or read a book or something, right? So initially, I have to force myself to do it. Initially, it is a conscious decision. But the more I do it, the more it becomes a habit. And in fact, at some point, it gets to, the, to, the, to, to a point where if I don't do it, then I actually feel bad. Because now I got so used that that is, the, that is a part of my life then it actually has become ingrained. So it's the same with, with character. That's how you practice. You make first a mindful, con conscious decision about what you want to improve, what 
part of your character you want to work on, then you start doing it. And the goal is that after weeks or months or years, sometimes it becomes a second nature. And then now you do it more and more automatically. That's great stuff there. You know, one of the things that, that I talk to my students about, I'm, I'm a former athlete and, mm. and, you know, so I teach leadership and, and certainly character. I actually have my students do a personal ethos and ethos, the Greek word for character. So I'm, I'm really big yeah. on this idea, but I, but I, uh, sometimes even with my coaching, I'll say, you know, I, I watch people do things once or twice, or maybe three times and they get frustrated because they're not really good at it. And I said, oh, my gosh, you know, as an athlete, you know how many times I practice things over and over and over again to really get good at it. So why would we expect that after a handful of times we're going to be good at something? So I think, you know, I think the message here and I think you'd agree, Massimo, is practice and settle in. This might take a while, but the fruits of that, you know, that labor Hopefully, you're yeah. a good thing, right? We we yeah, come out. We absolutely, have, we have that strong character. We do, and and we can to some extent change it. Now, of course, character, I think, again, is really like let's say aptitude for music. Some people are naturally more musical than others, and some people will be naturally more generous or brave, braver or more temperate than others. There's no question about it. This has has to do with. Genetic differences, probably. It has to do with early upbringing, you know, where you grew up and who your role models were and what kind of environmental circumstances you've been exposed to. However, just as it is true that some people are going to be more musical than others and and other people, some people are going to be, you know, more generous or more temperate than others. It's also true that anybody that wants to can improve their musical ability. You, if you start practicing and you start learning, you can do it. It's not, you know, even I could do it. I mean, years ago, I started, I picked up the the alto sax and, you know, hold below. After a while, I started actually playing things that were recognizable as a a tune. Now, will I actually ever be to Carnegie Hall? No, there's no way in hell that I'm going to ever be performing in public, (laughs) right? But I, but I did improve significantly over what I had in the beginning. And so the same goes with character. I mean, you know, you might not win the, win the Nobel Prize for peace, but that shouldn't be the goal. The goal should simply be to become a better human being, however, in however way you can do it and by however much you can do it. I like that. You know, we all have different starting points. I think that's how I yeah. sum it up is we all start from a different place, but, but we all have the, that capacity to improve. And, you know, where the end point is, maybe there's a hard limit there for us. And I would agree with you. (laughs) I have no musical talent. So I'm with you, Massimo, on that one. You know, one of the things that comes to mind, uh, there's a couple of things that are are bouncing around in my head. You know, one of the things that that when we look at that, that, again, I'm going to use good character, honesty, right? And I have, maybe you're dealing with this, you know, I, I know that you're educating young minds, Mossmo, and there's a lot of headlines right now about artificial intelligence, language generator, yeah. a chat GPT. If any of the listeners are, are familiar with this, this is a, for some educators, it's, it's, oh my gosh, I, I see some of my colleagues losing their minds over this. And so the idea is, if you're not familiar with this, is this is, you know, artificial intelligence that you can ask this this software, anything, let's say Massimo gives me a prompt in his class 
of tell me about something, you know, whatever the philosophy is or whatever that you're studying. And you could easily go, a student could go type that into chat GPT and get a nice, maybe a thousand word essay of yep. what, you know, answering that question. And so the, the, the concern here is these students are going to do this. They're going to copy and paste that. They're going to put that in their assignment. And now all of a sudden, nobody's writing anymore, right? Nobody's, there's no critical thinking. Okay, I get all that. My, some of my colleagues are changing everything about the way they teach their courses to combat this, to catch the cheaters. I am in the, I'm telling my students, I am educating you to be leaders of character. I'm going to give you trust until you prove me otherwise. I'm not changing anything. And I'm just going to say, hey, be better than that. You know, yep. and I don't know how this is going to turn out for me. I'm yep. going to put it on them to be leaders of character and not be dishonest. We'll see how that goes. What do you think, Massimo? Should we, I mean, there's so much there to unpack with, with this artificial intelligence, but what wh- what are your thoughts on that? Well, there is, I think there are two ways to look at it. Well, or at least I have two ways to look, look, look at it. One is essentially similar to what you just said. That is my attitude toward the students could be simply, you know what? I don't care if you're stupid enough to cheat, then you're cheating yourself. I mean, exactly. I don't, I don't really care whether whether your essay is your yours or somebody else's essay. You are by cheating, you're cheating yourself because it means that you're not learning what you'd be supposing, you know, supposed to be learning. And since college in the United States is pretty expensive, you're also wasting money, or at least you're wasting your your family's money by by cheating, right? So that could be one one answer to trying to, on the one hand, you know, the positive way of putting that is exactly the way you put it. That is, guys, you are adults. I'm trusting you that you're going to do the right thing. It's up to you. But if you don't do it, I don't care. <laughs> it's, it's You're undermining yourself. You're not, you're not doing me any, any damage. You know, you're not doing any, any of the sort. The other way to approach it might be something like, you know, there's no need to panic here. If you're really concerned about cheating from a different perspective, so one one could be concerned, a teacher could be concerned about teaching from a different perspective, cheating from a different perspective, and say, look, it becomes unfair toward the people that actually are not, they are not cheating if I allow rampant cheating, right? Those those people are actually doing the work, so it becomes an ethical question. In 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 fact, not about the cheater himself but about the the people who don't cheat and and they're going to be at a disadvantage because they don't you know they're not going to do it. If you really want to solve that kind of problem there are, in my mind there is only two very simple answers to that. You don't you know I I've, I've seen a lot of my colleagues who now are looking into AI to fight AI, you know so so there are now <laughs> programs that are tell you that you know there's a good chance that this was actually die, done by an AI. Forget about it. There are two well-known, very simple techniques. One, oral exams. You sit your students in front of you. There is no way they're going to be cheating. <laughs> it's like, okay, let's have a conversation here. You're not, you're not going to be able to cheat me. Or if you don't have that time, the problem with oral, oral exams, I grew up, by the way, with oral exams. I, mean, I was in Italy. All the, my university exams were both written and oral. And, but it takes time. Right. I mean, it, it took days for the professors to actually examine the whole class orally. So so I can understand that some people might not do it. Well, guess what? There is such a thing as pen and paper. You can have your students write on pen and paper with pen and paper in class while you're there. 
And there's no way they can be doing anything about artificial intelligence there. No technology. Oh, very simple technology. I guess yeah. a pen is technology. Yeah. But <laughs> very simple technology. And then and there you what, go. You solve it. That's what some of my colleagues are doing. But here's here's my pushback on that is, and I remember doing this when I was younger, where I got punished. You know, there's there's 5 or 10%. They're going to always try to get around the rules. They're going to cheat. Sure. And so the other 90% is, in my mind, being punished for that 10%. To do, I've done one oral exam, and it was tough. <laughs> I think we're adding a layer of challenge. Not everybody speaks well. So there's a different dynamic with an oral exam. So now I'm saying for all of you that are following the rules, you're going to be punished for those other 10% that are maybe going to break those rules. So I, I don't, that doesn't sit well with me. And I think that's why we make people bitter is when I got to be punished for somebody else, you know, that, that's not following the rules. So that's one yeah. thing. And, and by the way, it takes a lot of time too. But also it's going back to this idea of character. Wouldn't it be nice if I didn't even have to, you know, this is on you, you know, and when I say that, I say, yeah. this is on you, Mr. or Mrs. Student to, to have character. And, and, you know, for four months that I have you in my class, okay, I could be your police, but what happens after that? Yeah. You got to go out in the world and then who's going to be your policeman there? And so what am I teaching them? All I'm doing in my mind is I'm saying, I don't trust you. If I start changing everything, I'm I'm telling them, I'm giving them message. I don't trust you. Yeah. And I no, don't that's, like a, that's a very good, that's a very I good just, way I feel, of thinking about it. Yeah. I feel yeah. like that. That's tough. Especially if we're talking about adults. So if we're talking about college yeah. level students, then, you know, at that point, you should be treating them as adults and, you know, put responsibility back on them. You, you're, some not, of my colleagues yeah, you're not think I'm crazy. Yeah. And yeah. some of my colleagues think I'm crazy. And I told my students, I go, don't make me look bad. <laughs> I'm the only one that I know of in, in my group that is doing it this way. And they're all looking at me like I'm crazy. And I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to appeal to their better nature and see what I get. All right. So who knows? I don't know. It may, it may turn out to be a disaster for me. We'll find you know, out. In your, yeah. In your book, you, you know, sometimes I'll make a joke to my students and, and we always laugh about this. All of us, I say, I would like to have all of the politicians in the United States sitting in my classroom. <laughs> yeah. Because I look at, I look at the character of, and, and I don't know, maybe it's not just the United States, but I look at the character of our leaders and I just scratch my head. I mean, we have, we have a sitting, you know, congressperson that, that pretty much lied their way into Congress. And yeah. I'm like, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> Yeah. And so in your let's talk about this idea of character and our political leaders. Where's the the mismatch? What is driving this idea of I need to lie to get to the top or any number of bad behaviors that we see? What's driving this? It certainly doesn't look to be pro-social, but but maybe no. I'm missing something. No, it definitely doesn't look pro-social. Yeah, and that that particular person you're talking about is obviously just the the the, the tip of the, the iceberg because yeah. there is a lot of bad characters as far as I can tell that are and not just in the United States. I think that if you go to other countries, you're not going to find a much, much better situation. Part of the problem here is that is, is the same reason why Alcibiades is a great example for what we're talking about, right? It's motivations. The way, uh, our, the way our political system is set up, it attracts people who go out after self-aggrandizement and you know glory and money and power and stuff like that in other words it attracts exactly the wrong type of people and that's a structural issue 
That that is something that can only be addressed at a structural level. We cannot change every single one of those people, especially once that they're there already in this very little. However, what we can do, I think, is a couple of things that are much more long-term, unfortunately. You know, there's there's no silver bullet. If anybody's gonna open up the quest for character and think that there's gonna be a, a silver bullet that solves the problem immediately, they're gonna be disappointed. The Italian writer Umberto Eco famously said that for every complex problem, there is a simple solution and it's usually wrong. It's like it's not it's not gonna, it's just not gonna work. However, I think there are long-term considerations that we want we, we might want to make, two in particular. First of all, let's not forget, at least in semi-democratic countries like ours, ultimately the buck stops with us. You know, we elected those people. Uh, so, you know, we, we, can, we can pretend to be, you know, astonished at the fact that, oh my gosh, look at this guy, you know, look at how he lied as well. Who, who did he lie to? He lied to you, my friend. You are the one that actually put in, you know, on the ballot, checked, checked the mark and put it there. So it is on us individually to start paying more attention to the to the whole issue of character and the character and virtue of our of our representatives and and our our statesmen. So ultimately, it is up to us. There are exceptions. I mean, there are politicians who, at least from the outside, look like they're doing what you know things for the right reasons. That you may even disagree with their specific policies, for instance, but they are clearly trying honestly to do their best. But but ultimately, we have to remember that we, the people, have the power, at least in places like the United States, European countries, and a number of other places in the world. So the, the, the buck stops with us, in a sense. The other thing that also requires even a, even a longer time frame, I think, to be addressed, but it's even more crucial, is the next generation. You know, there is pretty good evidence that character is pretty much set by the early 20s. But when, when you get in your early 20s, which is the time, incidentally, where your brain stops growing, your character is pretty much set. And it's not going to change much for, for the rest of your life. You can improve things a little bit, especially if you want to improve. I mean, you know, self-improvement is always a possibility. But you're not going to become a completely different person. And, it's, of course, if you don't want to, if you're resisting, then nothing is going to happen. You're not going to change. Again, think about the analogy with learning a language or a musical instrument. It's much easier if you do when you're young than if you do it later in life. It's possible, but it doesn't, it requires a lot more energy, a lot more effort, and it doesn't come out as, as well as if you were doing it before, which raises the question of what the hell are we doing with the next generation? And the answer is close to nothing. We don't teach character. We don't teach virtue. We do not teach morality. We don't teach ethics in schools. We barely teach it at home. There's no framework for doing this. It is possible to do. And if, if your listeners or viewers want an example, I would encourage them to check a documentary that came out last year. It's called Young Plato. And it is set in, in Belfast, in Northern Ireland, in an elementary school, a Catholic elementary school. And it's the story of the principal of that school who decides to teach philosophy, to practical philosophy, to his kids, right? And he succeeds spectacularly. I mean, he just goes out there and talks to them about Socrates and Buddha and the Stoics and so on and so forth. And you can see these kids empowered with 
new ways of dealing with issues like bullying, for instance, or or with issues like the underlying, you know, violence, level of violence in their community. I, as I said, this is Northern Ireland. So, so th this is a very particular kind of environment in which these kids are, are growing up. So it can be done, but we don't do it. And the proof is, you know, we have a documentary, we have an entire movie that singles out one of the very few examples in which this is done. The resources are out there. There are for for elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools for how to teach philosophy and particularly ethics to the students. There are people that have worked on this stuff, but we don't do it. And we don't do it because there is largely two sources of resistance. One is, perhaps not surprisingly, politicians, uh, especially at the local level. And the other one, perhaps more surprisingly, is parents themselves. A lot of parents don't want, don't like the idea that their kids are going to be taught philosophy, political thinking, and ethics. Uh, Why do you in, think that is, Massimo? Well, there is a scene in, in the Young Plato that, that brought it very clearly to my attention because I was asking myself the same questions, like, why would a parent not want that? Well, there is a scene where this kid is distraught. He comes to school and he's distraught because his, his father told him that, you know, he has to react and punch people and, you know, because they are really on the other side and, you know, we need to defend ourselves, you know, the usual stuff that you might hear from a parent in Northern Ireland. And uh, the principal sits down the student and says, okay, I am going to teach you how to argue with your parents. This is a 70-year-old, right? <laughs> no parent wants their their kids to be taught how to argue with them, right? I had to come home and say, no, dad, you're wrong about this thing because of this and that and the other. So I, I think that resistance to teaching ethics and, and critical thinking is a matter of power. It's a matter of control. You know, we, mm. we like to control our kids. We both as parents and as, as, and of course, the last thing that a politician wants is a critical thinking population. Right. This is a good point. That's yeah, a good point. I mean, I mean, come on, right? Otherwise, people like the one that you mentioned earlier wouldn't get away with yes. what they've done, right? I mean, if you have a minimum of, of, of critical thinking, you, that, that kind of guy isn't going to get away with it. So, so there are obstacles, but I really do think that those are the two long-term answers. Number one, remember that we are the ones that elect politicians. Therefore, it is our responsibility to start to pay attention, not to what they're pandering, not to the kind of pie-in-the-sky things that they're saying, oh, I'm going to do this and then and the other. I want to know what kind of person you are. I want to know if I can trust you. Look, I consider myself, a, broadly speaking, a sort of progressive liberal as opposed to a conservative, right? But a much greater vote for a conservative with a good character than for a liberal with a bad character. Because at least a conservative, we can have a discussion about the specific you know, policies and, and goals, but that person at least is trying really to do their best in an honest fashion to improve society at large. The cheating politician is not, even if he may be going out there and telling the right, you know, talking the right way, I can't trust him. Because remember another thing in terms of politics, politicians are good at making promises, that's what they have to do in you know, your campaign. But you can be guaranteed that 90% of those, uh, those promises are never going to be enacted for the simple reason that they cannot act on, it, on them. You cannot go there and do what you want. 
you have to cooperate with hundreds of other people from all over the country in the Senate or in the House, right, and get stuff done. That means that what you get done depends on your character, depends on your ability to cooperate, depends on how much your colleagues esteem you as a person. Now, it doesn't depend as much on the specifics of what you want to do because those specifics go out the window as soon as you get elected. Most of them, you know. Not, not all, but most of them just go out the window because you can't you can't do it. So I'd much rather have somebody out there who has a good character, who is generous, who is honest, who is you know a critical thinker, and then that they'll figure out the best way to navigate the situation, whatever the situation might be. They cannot be held responsible for telling me ahead of time of what the situation is going to be. It, it's going to change. It's going to vary. It's going to be, they, they're going to face all sorts of challenges that they cannot possibly predict when they are on the, on the campaign trail. Mm. So character over specifics of the program. Yeah. Let, let's take a pause right there. Just say, you know what, let's, let's all just kind of close our eyes and think about a world like Massimo just described, where perhaps we would vote for somebody that had opposing views to us that had stronger character. That wouldn't that be? Can you imagine what that world would look like? I I I really don't believe there's many voters that have the checkbox of character as one of their deciding factors for who they vote for. And maybe that's a good takeaway from this this discussion is. Next time you cast your vote, what is the character of the person that you're voting for, no matter what party they're in? Because I agree with you 100%, Massimo. I'd rather have somebody with good character that maybe I disagree with, because at least they're a reasonable, rational person that, that I don't know, I can deal with that. This, this and well-intentioned. Reasonable yes. and well-intentioned, right? You I, may, I, we may yeah. disagree on, on the specifics of how we want to shape society. But if your intentions are good, then we might be able to come up with a compromise. Yeah, you're right. Most, unfortunately, the character is not on the top priorities or even possible on the radar of most readers. Otherwise, we would not have had either Bill Clinton or Donald Trump. There's just no way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I always like to say, you know, that some of the people, some of the presidents I've, I've cast votes for, there's no perfect candidate. No, uh, and, and I don't agree with everything that, that I, you know, that, that they did after I, after I voted them in, but I always like to say, was their heart in the right place? Were they trying to do their best? What was the country important? You know, the welfare of the company or country, was that important to them? Could I see that in their decision-making, even exactly. if it goes astray, even if they, they do some things I don't agree with, I think they were doing their best. And, and most of, at least in the past, I could usually say that about the presidency of the United States. I don't know about recently. Yeah. of what's the driving factor? What's the motivation for these people? And then we keep rewarding them. As, as a public, yeah. we reward this poor behavior, this poor character. What does that send to the message? Going back to your discussion, Masa, what does that send to the message we send to the young people? Exactly. The way you're going to get in power is you got to cheat, stop, you know, lie and steal, and that's how you'll get there. Exactly. That's what we're training our young people. And so, gosh, I, I get passionate about this and it's it's a little depressing to me. As we start to wrap this up, Massimo, and I want to go back and say, hey, for all of us old people like me, don't give up. Even though it's easier when you're younger, you still can you can still tweak your character. And I know Massimo agrees with that, but I want to I want to emphasize. I never want people of an advanced age to say, oh, there's nothing I can do. Yes, there is. And so as we as we wrap this up, what are our takeaways, Massimo? How 
you know, it's easy to to point out the window, right? To say they're all messed up. What about when we look in the mirror? How can all of our listeners maybe, and me included, improve our character? What would you offer? Yeah, that's a great question. So, because yes, you're right. It We should be concerned about our leaders and and people that, that really make decisions that impact millions. But at the same time, what we can really do is to improve ourselves. And and so, it, again, it's, it starts with us. Well, it turns out that both the, the Greco-Romans that I'm interested in and modern science tend to agree that there are certain things that work and other things that don't work in order to improve one's character. There are three things, for instance, fundamentally that do not work. One, perhaps not surprisingly, is doing nothing. You know, you hear you hear people say, oh, you get older and you get wiser. No, you get older, you get crankier. You don't get automatically wiser. <laughs> In order to get wiser, you need to learn from your experience. You need to be aging mindfully, not just accumulating experiences. The experiences by themselves are not going to do anything to your wisdom unless you actually pondered them, unless you reflect on them, unless you act actively trying to learn from them. So don't think that just by because you're getting older, you're getting wiser, because that's not that's not the case. Another thing that doesn't work is nudging. You know, nudging is a very powerful behavioral modification technique. There are a number of examples. For instance, a number of companies these days would make it so that a new employee has, by default, is is opted into healthcare or pension or something like that, as opposed to having to apply, right? Because the evidence shows that people are lazy. And therefore, if you if you give me the option, if you say, you know, you should file this paperwork in order to get on the pension plan, I'm probably not going to do it. You know, a certain percentage of people are not going to do it. If you switch it around and you make the default, you are already in it by the same for the same reason. I'm not going to get out, get out of it because it's it's work. So nudging works in that sense but it doesn't work in terms of improving your character precisely because it's about manipulating people it's not about conscious decisions of becoming of doing the right thing so that doesn't work either and the third thing that doesn't work is virtue labeling which we've been told we should be doing over the last several years you know like tell your kids that he's bright and smart regardless of the fact that in fact he's neither bright nor smart well, no, that's not going to work. The only thing that's going to do, and there is pretty good empirical evidence at this point, is going to set the kid up for for failure, because you know you're essentially lying to the to, to the kid. You're setting him up for doing certain things that that he's not going to be able to do because, as it turns out, he's not that bright. So it's much better to actually teach real a realistic expectation to to our kids than than just you know, going around and say, "Oh, you're so good." No, you're not. Now, what what does work? Well, there are three things that fundamentally that work. And again, these for these, there is both evidence from modern social psychology, but also those are the kinds of things that, you know, Seneca or Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius, to, to mention three of the, the three big Stoics, wouldn't be surprised at all. Number one, adopting role models. So pick somebody, more than one person, if you want, that you think is a good person, you think is is trying to do the right thing, then you can try to emulate. And then when you are faced with difficult situations, ask yourself, well, what would that person do? Right? It could be a famous person. It could be a somebody you read about in, in a book. It could be your grandparent. Uh, right? In my case, for instance, my grandparent, my grandfather was one of my role models because he was the kind of person that tended to do the right thing most of the time. Role models don't need to be perfect because nobody's perfect. They just need to be 
somebody that you might want to emulate your their their behavior. So that's one the first thing. The second thing that works is in a sense, the mirror image of what I said before when I was saying doing nothing doesn't work. It's clinical reflection on your actions. So try to learn from your mistakes, trying to mindfully pay attention to what you do and, and when you do the wrong, the wrong thing, why you did it and what can you do better. A very good way of doing that is to keep a philosophical journal, something like Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, for instance, right? So you write down every night for a few minutes, you know, people say often say to me, oh, but I don't have the time to do it. It's like, well, do you have the time to brush your teeth? Well, then you also have the time to do, you know, an evening meditation. We're talking about five minutes, right? Before going to bed, sit down, write about one episode during the day that was challenging for whatever reason. And ask yourself these three questions. What did I do wrong so that you can learn from your mistakes? What did I do right so that you can pat yourself on the back and reinforce that certain kind of patterns of behavior are, are good? And the third, perhaps most important question is, what could I do better the next time that something like this happens? Because it will happen again. Something similar will happen again. And now you are prepared. You're in your mind. Now you, you have a better idea of what to do. And then finally, the other thing, the third thing that works is to on purpose avoid certain situations that you know they're challenging if you don't think that they're ready. This is a trick that that social psychologists have demonstrated works very well in a variety of situations. So let's say, for instance, that you have a, a sweet tooth and you, you need to avoid, you know, what do you do? Do you go to the supermarket, get a bunch of desserts, put them into the freezer and then tell yourself, oh, I'm not going to eat them because they're there, right? I'm not going to touch them. Or... Do you go to the supermarket, skip the dessert aisle entirely, do not buy anything so that you're not going to be exposed to the to the temptation? Clearly, the second is more efficient way of, of because the problem is the willpower is limited. It does work like a muscle. It's not a muscle, but it does work like a muscle. It requires energy. And so if you constantly, constantly put yourself in situations where you can slip up and do the wrong thing, eventually you will do the wrong thing. So try to avoid certain situations. Like for instance, let's say that a colleague of yours invites you out for dinner and you know that she's being flirtatious about it and, and, you, know, and you don't want to go there because you're in a stable, good relationship. You value the trust of your partner and stuff like that. Instead of telling yourself, oh, what's the harm? I'm going to go. I'll have a glass of wine, but nothing is going to happen. Don't do it. Just say, thank you, but no, I have I have plans for tonight and just skip entirely. Do not expose yourself. Minimize basically exposure to bad situations or, or situations that are difficult to, to handle. There you go. There's some there's some good actionable things that you can do. I love all of that. A lot of it I do already. Uh, and so I think if you try that, I, I think you'll find good results. And if you liked our conversation, and I know you did, go out and get go out and get Massimo's latest book. I'm I'm working my way through it too. And Alcibiades is he's an interesting fellow, and you'll want to read his story. He he's his I don't know. I feel like he's his own worst enemy, and so that's <laughs> yes. always that always makes a good character in any story. So go check that out. And everything that you need to get in touch with Massimo will be in the show notes. And Massimo, until next time. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then... 
join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media. 